love sushi, I love Japan. My social life has hit the fan. All I have is anime, so I guess there's just one thing to say. Guru Gamesh, my life's a mess. My figure collection is racking up debt. My wife has left, my house is gone. Time to get my butt to Sakura Kong. Guru Gamesh. <sighs> Welcome to the Grugamesh Podcast, the only one place for anime discussion on the internet. I'm the host with the most, mostly Jay. And with me is my co-host. How you doing, Vic? I'm doing pretty well, thank you. How about you? Why do you have that? Well, you see, it's the summer. We're finally out of the horrific event that kept us in our houses for about a year and a little bit. I thought I'd experience the culture. I thought I'd experience a local idol concert because they, they have those right now. I went to see CBT or whatever their names are. But now I'm being chased through what looks like a Japanese back alley by this weird droopy guy with like a 90s camcorder. I think I've managed to lose him. Whew. Thank God I brought all this equipment with me so I can record the episode. Wow, that was lucky. Are we doing this on again? Oh, <sighs> God. <sighs> and it's funny you mentioned the whole idol thing, because today's podcast is on Satoshi Kon's debut work, Perfect ah. Blue. Oh, you mean the, the film that came out in 1997 or 1998, depending upon region, that tells the story of an idol pursuing the career of an actress and watching her psyche slowly fall apart? Well, it's a great thing we did all that research. Huh. Well, I guess the world works in funny ways. Well, whew. Okay. Well, with all that being said, welcome to the Grugamesh Podcast, the only one place for anime discussion on the internet, don't question that. I'm the host of The Most Mostly Jay, and to my digital right, Vikram. How you doing, man? I'm doing fairly terribly, okay? Um, I had to research this movie. It broke my soul. Yeah, how does it feel being the one who's writing notes for once? Because, you know, contrary to our pilot episode where I do all of the dumb research that no one cares about, you're going to be largely leading this discussion because in your own little hyperbolic time chamber, if you will, you have crammed all the knowledge you can into your mind palace and have now become a degree expert on this movie. And this episode might kill you. It almost did. Um, fun fact for the listeners, actually about one, about two hours before we started recording, I had, I literally told Jay, this may have broke me. This may have changed the entire perception and understanding of the film. I'm gonna need an hour to just process what the fuck is going on here. The sky is now so black and so is my late. skull. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's, I, so we're recording quite late. Um, just because I had to like fully wrap my head around the sheer complexity. And the only thing I can say with confidence right now is I feel very much like the character of Mima, which is very confused and I'm not entirely sure what reality is. <laughs> well, with all that, I'll give a brief synopsis and then we'll dive into this juggernaut of an anime production. Perfect Blue was animated by Studio Madhouse, directed by Satoshi Kon, and written by one Sadayuki Murai, 
released in 1997-1998, depending upon region, and tells the story of Mima, a pop idol recently divorced from her former pop group Cham and striking out on her own to become an actress who slowly finds her world being consumed with images of herself and her former idol attire questioning everything she does as she tries to create more of an adult image for herself and her world sort of collapses around her. So before we get into the sheer iceberg density that is this entire production, I think we should start with saying Perfect Blue is very weird in the anime community because it's almost more talked about in the Western film discourse than it is in general anime fandom. And this could be due to a myriad of factors, due to the fact that Satoshi Kon doesn't really buy into the TV anime moe, for lack of a better term, culture and style of anime, because of his more realistic rendered characters, the fact that he is definitively an anime filmmaker, and you can see that love for cinema and expressing his ideas in what can really only work in anime feature films. I completely agree. The real, the really interesting thing, and I think the reason um, Perfect Blue has actually taken off a lot more with Western audiences than necessarily the Japanese audience, even though I would like to make it clear it did do very well everywhere. Mm. The reason I think is because of the subject matter in its nature. And I think that the Western audiences are a lot more aware to some degree or another, of the whole, the lifestyles that occasionally these, the lifestyles of the, what, what would you call them? The minor famous? The moderately famous? Uh, yeah. C-list celebrity? Yeah, like this, this whole... What's quite funny is, as pointed out by the characters in Perfect Blue, Japan's idol scene was actually going through a bit of a slump when this film is set in the late 90s. And so it's kind of appropriate that they're being almost entirely funded by a direct market of obsessive, usually male otaku who obsess over these young women of being these perfect images that they cultivate in their head. And if they dare deviate from this, they get horrifically upset. This still happens to this day. The fact that Perfect Blue captures the art of wanting to be a celebrity but also not realizing the weight and sort of monkey's poor contract that comes with that is extremely well portrayed, especially for a subject that, like, we don't really have idols in the Western hemisphere of entertainment. We have celebrities, but idols are even more of a persona than just a regular famous person. Yeah, I think it should be noted that idols are considered to be at least if you look at it with a, a Western set of eyes, a almost abused group because of the horribly low pay that they get because they are price gouged out of all their profits and potential earnings from their publishers, their makeup artists, the advertising groups that they have to work with, uh, the horrible restrictive contracts that stop them from even forming relationships with other people, and the horrible cutthroat nature of the entire industry makes it, at least from a Western pair of eyes, very, very destructive. And it's at this point, I'd also want to note, there's a very strong feminist critique in this piece of work, which is really interesting. 
And I sad to say I will not do it any justice because I I do not have that relevant background at all, despite the fact that I'd like to. But I'd love uh, because there's a lot of things to do with uh, Mima's form, her body, her sexuality that are played upon. And there are classic feminine fears, such as the idea of being possessed, being owned, like a very classic or being controlled in a way that you didn't want to be like some of these things are almost archetypally feminine yeah, fears. and also the desire to perceive yourself as being mature through sexuality but then instantly having the regret. I think before we dive too deeply into that particular topic, I'm gonna talk about- Oh no, th- I- I just wanted to say that we won't dive as deeply that's, into that topic that's, that's as- That's fair, as, that's fair. Well- <laughs> we're gonna be very scatterbrained. Well, ta- <laughs> we're gonna be very scatterbrained during this entire episode because- You may do a tangent nevertheless. This is this is tangent to the episode because we are juggling two unfinished thesis papers written in crayon under a ceiling fan on a jet plane. Uh, I think I'm just going to get into, before we get into just the general film in of itself, what are some key memories you have with Perfect Blue? Oh, the key memories of Perfect Blue I have are them running through the streets with, shall we say, virtual Mima mm. chasing her right at the end of the film. The obvious rape scene, but, and this is what I want to highlight, despite the fact that the rape scene itself was very shocking, I wanted to highlight those little gaps, those cuts, those moments of them almost, almost breathing like as if they could take a breath. I was going to get where, to this a little later, but I guess uh, if you don't yeah. mind, I'm going to describe some things about uh, Satoshi Kon as, a, as an anime filmmaker, and then we will dive into what you and I believe is the most important scene of the movie, possibly. So in this film particularly, Satoshi Kon, I'm going to use this word a lot, there feels very much like a diegetic obsessive filmmaker. Now, for those unaware, diegetic is a filmic term that essentially means in-universe. It's usually referred to as sound and imagery. For instance, if something is diegetic sound, it's sound coming from in-universe. Say if someone is speaking or someone turns on a radio and it plays whilst the scene is filming, that's diegetic, but sounds added like post-process sound effects or the musical score, that's non-diegetic. And it's a little funny when referring to anime, considering everything is being created. But the reason I say that Satoshi Kon is a filmmaker obsessed with diegetic techniques is how he links scenes so seamlessly using a very notoriously difficult medium of analog cellular animation and because they're using actual cameras to photograph these as opposed to scanning in digital images filmic techniques such as hard cuts panning zooming it feels filmic and that's really impressive considering there's a lot of distorted cuts and even shaky cam at times which usually animation kind of avoids because you can place the camera wherever you want in animation 
yeah, no, completely. And he manages to mimic those same sort of... Um, he doesn't necessarily mimic dolly cuts, but he mimics those same style yeah. of cuts. The the uh, the follow, the things that are like seamless and staples of camera techniques in live action filmmaking, yeah. he does them in animation, which means they did it frame by frame, mm. which is amazing. And I absolutely adore that. Yeah, no, it, it's wonderful. In particular, the scene that strikes me is when Mima is chasing her idol persona through those teal corridors after doing an initial scene at one of her acting gigs, and the betrayal of motion and the betrayal of chaotic confusion with her disorientation is extremely impressive. I think that's one of the reasons that this film has such a core fan base in the Western film community, is the fact that it feels more in line with how someone looking at making a live action film but transferring it to animation would do this as opposed to someone who was say a tv anime director but then processed to cinematic endeavors because khan was a manga artist but he has always had a love for film he has said in the past that uh, he is despite having several obsessions with series like mobile suit gundam in his past he was not really a part of the otaku craze and very much is just a fan of cinema and art in general as opposed to anime in particular. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. There have been some filmmakers who have even aped Cone, some of Cone's uh, more famous scenes and have taken at least inspiration from it. I believe even S Steven Spielberg has talked about how impressive and Cone's movies are and he's not the only one. So I'm, I, so yeah, that's why I'm super excited to talk about the film and also going back to that corridor scene what that you talked about mm. with the teal teal corridors oh, here we and go. Here we bouncing go. then they the brilliance of cone he evolves it in the third act and he makes it the bouncing mima virtual mima the running ragged real mima and then rumi just like a sweaty Shrek running through a city. It was, it's amazing. I love it. Mm. I loved it so much. Um, Absolutely. Like, sorry, just I thought there was someone behind me for a second. Huh. My red dress has disappeared. Don't ask me why I have a red dress. It's uh, probably Grunkle Greg's. Uh, anyway, I think... Uh, what is next? I mean, I've talked about Khan's uh, use of diegetics, but also diegetic music is incredibly important in sound cues because it's the story of an ex-pop idol. So quite often the fading of the in-universe musics of Cham can feel even more... They can, they can cut even more deep because it can feel like... I'm questioning my reality whenever I watch this film because... There are multiple moments in this feature that it's very purposely difficult to tell what is real and what Mima is dreaming or choosing to believe. And I think this leads us quite nicely to the themes of maturity and sexuality. Now, content warning, we're going to talk about what is for all intents and purposes a sexual assault scene, even if it's filmed for an in-universe TV show, feel free to, I'll probably put time codes when we release the episode, feel free to skip over this. It's, it is icky, and I blame no one for feeling uncomfortable during this, because that's the whole point. 
Okay. Um. Yeah. Let's. Uh. Let's talk about the rape scene. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that that's an award-winning podcast sentence right there. Uh, in my defense, in my defense, it was those little moments where I uh, what I was referring to those little moments of br- of breathing space that were my favorite moments of the re- uh, not necessarily the rape <laughs> scene itself. Okay, I want that on the record. I I am unashamed to admit that I am anti-rape. Okay, that is that oh, is what, what, that is what something a hard stance for you to take. No, I'm I'm gonna move on. I'm gonna move on. <laughs> Jesus Christ, what am I doing? All right, so I'm gonna question if I leave this in the episode or not. <laughs> <laughs> we made it five episodes uh, in way. before we were hunted down, quite rightly so. Anyway, so in this particular scene, my favorite thing about it is the fact that there is an incredible dissonance because what happens is it uh, they say action, they do the whole cutboard, and then it looks like it's just part of the film. It's shot as if it's just happening to Mimi in real life. All of the horrific club lighting happens, the chaos ensuing, and then someone fucks up a line or a take, and they all have to hold their positions, and then you can see that it is, in fact, being filmed for television. And they have to just hold these positions whilst you hear background noise of crews reassembling cameras, and the fact that Mima's would be... Uh, Assaulter sort of whispers and says, I'm very sorry about this in a very sort of polite, meek tone. And that's brilliant because it just breaks your perception of reality in that one quick moment. And it's so key to the entire film. It's, do you know what? It's, it's so good because of the fact that it rubs salt in this horrible wound in the nicest way. You're experiencing some ex- something horrible. You're not even ex- actually experiencing it. You're just watching it. But, but it you know, feels so horrible. Yeah, you are vicariously and, witnessed. You also feel very perverse. Yeah. And the thing is, as this, but in those little breaks where you could almost breathe, almost. Mm. You get these you get these apologies where they're like, I'm so sorry you have to go through this. Mm. And it's crushing. It's absolutely crushing. I I didn't I I what almost makes it worse is that Mima had an out during all of this because she's so desperate to move away from being the third wheel of an idol group that is now doing better without her. It's it's no no, it's not just it be be careful. A lot of people make this mistake, not just yourself. Um, she actually isn't that into the whole acting career thing, but okay. her agency is. Yeah, yeah. And it's she's because the just battle of her on. agent and Rumi trying to preserve the pure memer, if you will, but the fact that she's going along with it just to sort of please people. Am I am I on the uh, a more correct You're, line? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So Mima really wants to please the people mm-hmm. she's working with and working around. It's uh, trying to be as polite as possible. Almost uh, t- typically that Japanese sentiment, if you will, of trying to be as polite and as courteous as possible to those around you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, like, it's, it's just horrible because you're watching her do something she absolutely despises. And she makes it clear later on, this is not us reading into oh, it. The, she when she destroys her day. room and destroys like the 
images of what represents maturity around her and just breaks down like screaming into her pillow how she doesn't want to do this i want to touch briefly on idols and sexuality and also what it means to try and want because we see this a lot in celebrity culture say if uh, a child star or someone that is known for more of an innocent performance say an idol tries to break out they try to make a name for themselves their first inclination usually is to go for something that is innately more sexual innately more shall we say risque because that is a false equivalency of maturity and we see this with mima with the fact that she either chooses or allows i'm not quite sure i can't remember to have herself being photographed naked which uh, and then that's into space with a bunch of interviews like after this scene is filmed of how she wants to evolve herself as an actress, but it's all it's all a front. She really very clearly isn't comfortable with a literal male gaze that's through this, the lens of this camera. Yeah, it's... Oh, God. I, I'll i be honest with you. Even I'm not 100% certain how much Mima... Uh, Mima asked for or opted toward this um i i know that obviously her agent set it up Mm. to help bolster the idea that she was trying to get rid of her image and that bear in mind that sex scene that was arranged was not done it wasn't done on her request or on her agent's request but it was more done on the request of her agent to get a more meaty role Mm. in the tv show she was recently put in which is double bind, which is what makes this movie probably a masterclass in transitions. Yeah, I've it might be the be, the best transitions I've ever seen any movie do. Period. I, I'm actually struggling to think of a single movie that did more high quality transitions than Perfect Blue. It's or at just least stuff that isn't stylized because it's it's you know it's easier to do. For instance, I'm thinking of Edgar Wright as directors who nail transitions, but in a very stylized way. But Khan does it in sort of like a very subtle way. So it's two different uh, variables of going around the same objective. Uh, I think we should touch on the fact that it's not just about someone breaking down from psychosis. It's also about it's a bit of a murder mystery. The fact that people close to Mima keep being killed off seemingly by this assailant with a screwdriver. Speaking of which, mine's gone missing. Eh, oh well, didn't need it right now. And it's it slowly happens with a letter bomb and how the staff of uh, the show she's working on are targeted and then people even close to her are targeted and then the most horrific scene is when the photographer who took those naked photos is literally castrated with a screwdriver and because this is cellular animation the blood is vibrant and almost the only cartoonish element about this film is that the of how red the blood is and that's that hardly feels cartoonish that just feels that just feels very straight that just feels like horrifying Mm. Mm. Huh, you've been mentioning a bunch of your stuff's been going missing. Yeah. You know, now that I look to my right, my bathtub is missing. Your whole bathtub? Yeah. I didn't know you could steal those. I'm from Manchester. You can steal everything with enough elbow grease in a truck. Huh, strange. Sorry, I just noticed that. Anyway, going back to this. I think one of my favorite elements of that is whilst these horrific uh, these horrific events are going around, my favorite minor 
bit about the film is the fact that you have the free snarky pop idol fans who are constantly commentating on all of the events happening as if it's a director's commentary happening in universe and how these just free shitty teenagers are just being snarky assholes about all of this and it's kind of i think it's it, it's very subtle but i really like that sort of bird's eye view of this whole scenario just from someone entirely removed from the equation and that is actually those three actually touch upon like the most important the like the meat of the film itself which is the idea that you do not own the image you are okay and that is exactly what they are uh, that's exactly what they're doing. They're talking about buying Mima's disc and how lovely her voice is. In that scene, like I believe it's a few seconds after that very scene that you're talking about, mm. right at the beginning, uh, there's literally an image of, we will refer to him as Mimania, this really creepy dude. Holding his hand out as if Mima is a figure. Exactly. Uh, right that that is his and his alone and it represents very clearly not only the pop idol problem uh, that japan had back then but also a representation of the fact that this is a fight between the image or the reality the humanity who is mima and that is the weight of the movie and even earlier we're gonna go backwards on this one even earlier in the movie the very opening of the movie actually foreshadows the whole movie now you brought this up to me like a few weeks ago and i looked at you as if you had two heads but the more you've tried to explain this to me i kind of get you so the mic is yours vikram Okay, so the opening shot is of three Power Ranger knockoffs. So off-brand Power Rangers called Powertrons. So there's Powertron Red, Powertron Green, and Powertron Blue. And those three colors are the three colors that make up the physics rainbow, as in red, green, blue, RGB. Those are the three types of colors that make up every... Uh, make up the pixels in your s computer monitors and they are generally considered in physics the three s separate colors uh the three primary colors uh different and distinct from how you'd normally consider it in art where yellow would replace green but nevertheless that's how it is and this movie has all three super sentai tesco value <laughs> dumbasses um <laughs> Fire their Tesco value dumbasses. <laughs> Tesco value dumbasses. Do, 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 do. Sorry. Um, but yeah, they, they have their weird guns, their weird Star Trek guns that they fire at a monster that is literally called, and I wrote this down so I wouldn't think I was delusional. Okay. The name of the monster that they are fighting is... Called, according to Satoshi Kon himself, Kingberg. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was losing my mind when I read that, but no, that's real. That's its real canonical name, Kingberg. And he's the ruler of all bugs. 
<laughs> okay, I'm, I'm gonna need you to like <laughs> back up just a few steps. How does this foreshadow the entire film again? So, the reason it foreshadows the whole film is RGB is the three colors that make up all the colors we will ever see. Okay, I get that. Um, so that's the primary part. The fact that the Super Sentai Power Rangers are all wearing masks representing the fronts or the images constructed to show off to the public, which is, by the way, what the Super Sentai Force is doing there. It's just a show, basically, on a stage. It, this is all constructed for the public. And Kingberg is the ruler of all bugs because he represents the bug that quote-unquote besets Mima and her perceptions of of her own humanity and it's d the bugs that she develops in her own humanity and a common uh, thing that is also referred to as a bug is an error in in a network or a computer as in the network or the internet that seems to be taking over Mima's life or is the sort of vehicle for yeah, yeah. ruining v Mima's life throughout the film. I'm going to cut you off just briefly. I think this is a good... Uh, before we return to your TED talk on whatever the hell this is, I think we should talk about Mima's room and how despite the fact this was the late 90s, the usage of internet culture when it comes to... Uh, niche gatherings and persona and parasocial relationships is terrifyingly accurate and also works incredibly well as a plot point that adds to the murder mystery and adds a whole other element of suspense and commentary and also just the nature of existing and not knowing what people think of you, but then having it fully on display. It's so much, it feels so much, it must feel so much more surreal than that, at least for Mima, because it's not just that this is a blog written by somebody who's claiming to be Mima, and then Mima's reading it and is like, wow, they must really do their research. But they have intimate personal knowledge. knowledge of what grocery she buys what routes she takes on the train what how she likes to take steps mm. very personal things that this person shouldn't be able to know and it fucked with her perception of whether or not she was even her which is a fantastic link to what will eventually be revealed as the shock twist at the end but that only becomes apparent to you once you've watched it maybe one or two times through before yeah there's even literally a scene in the film where mima is staring at her pc in the dark and she says oh i guess i went to hakujuku today yeah, the fact that that's writing her life as opposed to her own actions yeah and to be honest with you, that that is also perfectly emblematic of the movie uh, uh, of uh, Mima's journey in that film, because it's always her agents writing her life for her. Yeah. All throughout, which again, them digital uh, or flesh. Yes. Again, that could go into further areas of yeah, the, feminism there's, there's and being controlled. There's a lot of different thing about not, control, perception we're not and persona. Touch that. Yeah, we're not, we're not, we're not qualified. We're, we're not we're not good enough we make, okay we, we're just not we good make enough jokes about japanese cartoons and sometimes they're funny this is above our pay grade and we do this for free 
Yeah, uh, this ain't us. This ain't it. So we're just gonna we're just gonna say we acknowledge that. We know that's there. We know there are more layers, but we can't dig that mm-hmm. shit. So we're gonna move on and hope others will cover those areas in with more detail. Or at the very but least, then again, we are the first ever anime s- podcast to exist, so it's only natural that people will expand on what we've done. I mean, people are obviously <laughs> going to copy us, so that's just natural. Exactly. So might, we understand. Might, might, as well, might, might as well get that out of the way now. Yeah, like people copy us, then we understand. We understand. We we are gods. We are gods. Um, but yeah, sorry. Going back to this weird situation. I'm amazed we've stayed on vague subjects. I thought we would just be drooling on the floor like children having sugar overdoses, trying to comprehend every meager frame of this gargantuous beast. An hour ago, I was 100% there. (laughs) I was definitely there. I was managed to gather up enough of my sanity into a small bowl. So I'm just picking at that at this point and just hopefully munching on it to help us get through the film. So cycling back to where we were previously when we were talking about the Super Sentai opening. Yes. Now... The three colors, RGB, actually represent different things themselves, not just King Bird. <laughs> he might represent the bug, but the three colors also represent their own things. Red represents Mima's life as a pop idol. It's why her outfits, are uh, when they first appear, are red-ish. I'd say they're more pink, but they are meant to be red-ish. It's a lightish red. Yes. And... In every and every time we see Cham later on, generally speaking, the two girls that are remaining are wearing green and blue Mm. or yellow and blue, distinctly missing that third color. I wonder what they're referring to. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, red. And contrasting that with Mima's new life in blue. And I'd like to and if you have a little bit of contention, like, okay, maybe her old bandmates are in red but like what's signaling the thing that like Mima's doing blue work like what why is Mima now in the blue like how does that make sense blue is famously referred to do if you're doing blue film work it can often be referred to things like smut or more uh, what's a tasteful word for what I'm looking for indecent indecent photography and film uh something more risque uh, it's it's a famous it's a it's a famous term, uh, and those two things often contrast with one another. And to furthermore emphasize this later on in the film, you'll see it. But the fish in Mima's tank all die, except for two. One represents the old Mima, the other one is the new, and they are battling for control. It's actually famously on the Laserdisc cover art. It's on some of the DVD cover arts. It depends which region you're in and whether or not. Is this the one where her hands look like they're being strung up and she looks like she's, you know, in some sort of bondage, but in reality it's, you know, her stabbing someone? No, uh, it's the one where she is bathed in a really dark blue to black and uh, underneath her chest would be uh two fish okay that's a rare one i haven't seen that around 
I've I've seen it uh, I've seen it around. Uh, you will see it. It's Mima looking straight at you. Okay. So who would be whoever would be the uh, viewer of the image looking directly at you? And yeah, those are two little pieces. Um, th- that's the war of what Mima is fighting. And the idea is that by balancing the R, the G, and the B, you can attain, you can, by balancing those three aspects of Mima, she can become an actual person. She can get control of her humanity. That is the, that is basically the idea. Like when the three unite together, she becomes a person. Because you can't just be indecent, but you can't be that strict, prissy, prim, pop idol either the green the green is interesting the green is the green is where the weird shit happens yeah i was gonna um, say dude can you use some green right about now <laughs> um yeah we're not gonna get into the green stuff till the end because which is a shame because that- i could fucking use something because i feel Oh no no no! This is this is green stuff is like really bad LSD. Um, <laughs> this will take you into a world you did not think possible. You'll think I'm crazy. I think I'm crazy for even considering a it. World of pure inebriation. Oh yeah, hands down. <laughs> okay, can I go on some tangents just before you dive back? Please into, let let us let us claw back some sanity by talking about some more mundane no, things. No, I want tangents. I want tangents. I don't want to go. <laughs> that that's a scary okay, place so okay i think we've already touched on the effect of parasocial relationships on but briefly touching on your theories of color it also the themes of uh the sets of the tv show quite often when they're shooting the scene where mimi just has one line in the hospital set that is all a sort of clinical blue but the carpets of the film set and the low-hanging stage lights, they are all red. So that's constantly, and uh, when Mima Rin is dancing on the uh, lamps outside the city, when Mima is just looking out into the cityscape and seeing her alternate persona laugh maniacally as she almost pirouettes all over the landscape, that's a mixture of those two colours. It's just a very... It's all throughout the film that you can once... You sound like a crazy person. Yeah. When you explain this, and you, you, you may be, as far as I can tell, but I'm slowly joining you. I'm putting on my tinfoil hat because when you see it, you see it, and you've absolutely nailed this. Yeah. It's really disturbing because there are genuinely scenes when they are on the set of Double Bind where there's almost like there's a line in the animation floor where the where on the floor that they've drawn where half of it is red like a deep dark red and the other part is a clinical acerbic blue and it's like almost like a line was drawn Mm. it's that distinct a split and those warring color states appear all throughout the film like with uh, when they are later on in the movie, when they're filming other scenes for Double Bind and they're outside, there's a bright blue sky contrasting against a bright blood red structure that sort of fights the sky yeah. for domination of the scene. And and, um, and in moments where Mima really starts to lose her sanity, you see her entire where she starts even speaking to the virtual Mima. Mm. 
her entire face becomes engulfed in red. Mm. The CD player uh, right before the uh, writer for Double Bind dies is a vibrant carpet red. That carpet in the elevator that's playing, um, which the CD player is on, that's playing the cham music. Mm-hmm. Vibrant. Yeah, which is then blood red. Also complemented with the fact the dude has his eyes gouged out and blood is all throughout the back of the surprisingly teal elevator. Yes. I wonder why. Hmm. God, you've converted me. Let me just, uh, I'll get my tinfoil pants as well, see if they match. I also want to touch on the OST for a second. Uh, the music was composed by someone called uh, Masahiro Kumi, and their blending of J-pop, but also haunting sim feels like an intentional psychological attack on the viewer's paranoia at a subconscious level. The most famous musical track in this film is a track by the name of Virtual Mima, which is a track that plays usually when Mimarin shows up and says something very ominous and yet giggly. In many ways, I feel this is the most important piece of music in the film because it acts as a sort of sign that dissonance is approaching and it builds with sort of haunting chants, drumming, and then synthetic repeats. Is, it's chilling and it's otherworldly. Whenever I listen to it on my own, it makes me feel like my world is crumbling around me, like I'm running away from something that I can't see and yet I know is there. And then in the final act, when Mima is running through the streets of Tokyo, the fact that these fast hi-hats start kicking in and also with the strums of a heavy electrical guitar, it changes the narrative entirely to something that you might hear in a Mission Impossible film. Absolutely. And to be honest, that's kind of how the film ends. It ends with that. It really does have its payoff. And honestly, by the end of the movie, it almost feels like a a different Mima has left. It's a different Mima. It feels like a different Mima, or at the very least an evolution of that final Mima because I I feel like it's right in that final scene where she chooses to save virtual Mima. Really, it's Rumi, but Mm. virtual Mima. We'll get to that twist in a second. Oh, yeah, of course. But she makes a choice. Sorry, just I I think my pizza's finally arrived. I got hungry for the podcast. Oh, okay. Hi there. Uh, Yeah, just, just bring it in. Wait a second, that's that's my red dress. And and my screwdriver. Oh god! Rick! The the, the guy who's chasing me for the for the back alleys is here! Whoa! Easy! Easy! He's trying to kill me! Oh my god! Easy. Does he have my bathtub? I think he does! He's wearing like half of it, like this weird sort of ballerina dress. It, it's it's coated in blood! Oh god! Oh god! Oh. Wait a second! And that's just fallen down. He's... He's under it. We just kick the screwdriver from his... From his hands. I think I'm safe now. I guess I must have a guardian angel. No, you don't. You've got me in the basement, you silly bastard. Oh, hello, Grunkle Greg. Uh, Vic, I don't believe you've met my Scottish Grunkle who lives in my basement and seals my anime VHSs. No, I haven't. Hello, Grunkle Greg. Ugh. You see... I set my constant traps in case young people come and try and take away my grandma volumes. Grunkle Greg, go back in the basement. I'll feed you your laser disc later. Right, bye. Bye. (laughs) 
That was really weird. All right. It's time to unmask this culprit once and for all, Vic. Let's see who really is behind that creepy looking face. <gasps> it's Darren Aronofsky. Oh, my God. The filmmaker behind Black Swan and other good movies. It's true. I was the culprit all along. But no, why? I don't believe you. You don't make good movies. <laughs> but why would you do this, Darren Aronofsky? Is this because you're so obsessed with recreating perfect blue imagery? So obsessed with mimicking the key cornerstones of Khan's legacy that you'd go so far as to mimic his most treasured creation in a sick, twisted way? No, I just really like killing teenagers in weird drag. Oh. Well, that's... Wait, why did you steal my bathtub then? Gotta go, bye! Oh, bastard! Oh, he's just dived out the window. Well... Oh, damn. That was... What? That was something. I mean, yeah, next time, make sure your window's closed during recording sessions. Yeah, for sure, by all means. Uh, you never know when Darren Aronofsky's gonna appear. I'm, I'm sure Grunkle Greg will have something to prepare for when he comes back. If there's one thing he hates more than modern anime, it's live-action films pretending they're as good as anime. <sighs> so with my life still intact, I think we should focus on the final act of the film. Okay. We've kind of been all over the, f uh, all over the place with this mm. film. But then again, so's the film. <laughs> so I feel like it's apt, because none of us know what the fuck is going on. And... Honestly, I've watched it maybe five times now and done serious deep dives. Still couldn't tell you, honestly, what I really know. So why don't you take this, Jay, while I just ponder existence? <laughs> okay, so what's very interesting about this is the film pulls a bait and switch. Whilst all of these key figures in Mima's career have been murdered, it looks like that she's been the one killing them, specifically when... The pizza uniform that the killer dresses up in and murders the photographer that took the naked photos of her ends up in her own room just before the press absolutely swabs her outside of her house asking for her comment on it. And it pulls a double bluff where it shows the two actors playing the detectives, but the way it's shot and animated, it looks like Mima was making this all up as it went along, and these two detectives were really in the real world all along, and they describe Mima as some sort of obsessive killer. And that in itself would have been a damn decent ending, but it then pulls the perception rug from under you, and Mima ends up in what is an approximation of her room, but isn't her room, and standing before her is the one person care who cares about Mima's image more than she does, Rumi. Now, Vic, did you at all suspect Rumi to be the killer when you first watched this movie? Because I sure as hell did not. Fuck no! <laughs> no one did! It's, it's, uh, I think we said this the other day, it's a masterclass in, in twists. Like, by far, w the best twist I've ever seen. Sh Shyamalan, eat your heart out. I, I don't know what more to say. It was, it would have been a superb plot without the twist. But with the twist, it's, it's fantastic. It's phenomenal. And I did not expect it. Um, oh, I don't like M. Night Shyamalan. Get out of my house, you bastard! <laughs> I think he came back. Oh, Vic, 
Here's your bathtub. Maybe he's not such a bad guy after all. Well, I still... I mean, he stole the bathtub. Like, I, I need to install that back in. Grunkle Greg's taking it down to his basement. You're never going to see it again. Sorry, pal. Well... Oh, no. It's the thought that counts. But, yeah. And what's really interesting about Rumi is... Upon rewatching this, I think Perfect Blue has to be one of the most pleasurable, rewatchable anime films I have in my repertoire. It makes complete sense because there's a scene where Mina's agent talks to Rumi about her previous glory days as an idol, and it's very missable if you're not paying attention. Once you realize how much Rumi cares about Mima's image as an idol and Mima's perfect image as this pure symbol of what she once was and still views herself as, it is the most logical and satisfying conclusion to this whole mystery arc. Oh, absolutely. Um, I couldn't agree more. It's brilliant. They left all the breadcrumbs. I think it's, as you said, it's the most pleasurable rewatch of any piece of media I may have ever consumed. Um, just because Although it did make sense the first time, it makes more and more sense with every watch. Yeah, I really want to give credit to uh, Sadayuki Murai, who was the actual screenwriter on this, who also penned Millennium Actress, Khan's next film, because Khan kind of gets praised at this auteur, but he actually didn't write his first two movies. This was Murai. And I think this guy needs a lot. Of, he doesn't get a lot of credit from what I've researched. And I want to shout him out right now because this is massively woven together. Fair enough. I, I would like to point out that actually they did do the work collaboratively, kind of like the Coen brothers. Yeah. But they um, but he never gets the name they, mentioned. So that's why I brought it up. Yeah, no, absolutely. He should get the name mentioned. And it's brilliant. In fact, it was their idea... I don't know if it was his specifically or if it was his and Cohen's together, but at the very least, they were, when initially adapting this movie, because it was originally a book, mm -hmm. when adapting it into a movie, they actually didn't like this, the original script for adaptation into an animated movie. Mm. And they literally got permission from the original author to get the movie, uh, to be able to change the script of the movie. Yeah, so... And with a few caveats being, like, the... The, um, like, maintaining a few themes here and there, they actually got it done. And just as an aside, I went ahead and tried reading some of the books. It's ask, not a very good book. I was going to ask you about this, because it's actually not very well known that Perfect Blue is an adaptation of a Japanese novel... I didn't get into researching this other than the fact I know that the novel is even more grotesque than the film attempts to be. You said you read a little bit about it. Can you tell me like a few quick details or like give me a <sighs> summation of what you read? That sigh is telling me a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's kind of, it's weird. So the problem is, is that it's probably more grotesque than the film. Uh, what, I, what little I've read, and I haven't read a lot, and as um, and it's probably as well not probably the best well uh, the best translated work ever. I would imagine that would be the case. Yes. Yeah. So with both of those things in mind, I'm trying to be super careful about how I phrase this, which is that the film probably uh, the book it doesn't seem at the very least in terms of translations. 
doesn't seem very good like it's grotesque but without that build-up without that character Mm. development that like really sold the punches of what made um of what made the punches in the movie so visceral and like poignant and impactful um which is why um obviously i prefer the movie um interestingly they didn't think this movie would ever show in TV, uh, in a, not TV, ugh, in, um, in theatres. Because it has, it's classified under a G rating by the Japanese ratings board, which is the equivalent to... G15, I believe. Yeah, G15, which is the equivalent to a 15 in this country, and probably what Americans would know is like a, a light R rating, if you will. Oh no! I believe I believe uh, Americans don't actually have a fifteen rating. They just have. They, you just go straight from PG thirteen to R. Yeah, PG thirteen to R. I believe. Which we were having this discussion. No, no, no. I think it's seventeen plus and then R. Interesting. Because R rated is like porn or no, something no, no, like no, that. No, 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 no. You're thinking of X. Oh, sorry. You're right. You're right. My bad. Yeah. Because we were discussing, so we'll be like, what did this film have to do to earn that rating? Because it seems to have everything that would classify it as an adult film, but we looked into it and apparently male genitalia is where Japan draws the line, which, I mean, explains... Oh, and, and, and humping. There was only, I think, two or three humps in this movie during the rape scene. Uh, and I think the line is like any more than three or three and above. Basically, they were like we one or two humps. We can't have the people under. knowing about intercourse. How else yeah. do we produce the androids that will take over this nation? This That sounds really stupid, but in all honesty, the American system isn't that much better. In fact, I believe like to keep, um, I think it was... Twilight, one of the Twilight movies, I think it was Breaking Dawn, to keep I knew that we were going to go on tangents, but Jesus Christ, you've managed to mention Stephanie Meyer's Twilight Saga in a in an episode about Perfect Blue. It wasn't even, it was not even Twilight, <laughs> I'm talking about one of the sequels. Oh, Jesus. So one of the sequels really uh, had a sex this? scene, but they wanted to keep it PG-13, so they, um, oh, what did they Vic, do? I love yeah. you, but I will likely cut all of this. Well, here's the thing. <laughs> they couldn't show the ass crack. They was like, listen, you want to hump? That's fine. Do not show the ass crack. That was that was their rule, because otherwise it would bump up the rating. It was really surreal. So Japanese and English uh, and the more Western rating boards are all stupid. So let's just be clear. You heard it here, kids. Break into your local blockbuster video and steal that copy of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The Garugamesh podcast approves. Yeah, you know what? Yeah, sure. I was about to say, whoa, we're opening a can of worms there, but it's like, oh, wait, no, never mind. Ignore that. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Only one blockbuster exists, so they're all going to take, they're all going to go to the same store in like Miami or wherever wherever it is. Anyway. No, it's. It's in, like, a really remote part of the US, as far as I remember. Okay, so I think just before we close out, we're going to talk about the last 10 minutes of this film involving the chase with Rumi, the final climax in the hospital, and how the dub kind of fucks up the message. I I just want to do some quick bullshit. Yeah, you you fire off your your, your fun quick facts with Vic. Yeah. Um, Okay, so... There's a fan theory. Oh, here we go. That's been uh, propagated by some YouTubers. Not going to mention any names. All I'm going to say is 
it's real fucking weird because they they say that actually the male agent Tadakuro was actually also in on the thing on the delusion as well he too was deluded uh-huh. and that the way you could tell whether or not something is um in whether something real happened or whether it was fake and it was staged or like as part of a psychosis is on the lighting so they believe that whenever there's overexposed lighting or harsh lighting in in a scene that scene is almost certainly within a psychosis and the position and the the evidence they point forward to this is that for Mima's conversation with her mother um half of it you can hear her mother really well but then when her mother starts asking her or seemingly asks her normal questions like how are you and blah 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 we can't hear her mother anymore. We can only hear Mima's responses and Mima's light is now overexposed. And then when it turns back to the more muted lighting, all of a sudden we can hear Mima's mom again explain why they're disappointed and how her uncle promised to buy 20 CDs of her first track when it came out, etc, etc. And moving on from there, they also say Mimania isn't a real person, okay? He is a figment of Mima's and everyone's imagination. Okay, this is what was breaking me. Okay, this. I mean, first of all, you said according to YouTubers, which is the first thing that should cast doubt on any of these people's opinion. Although I doubt many of the things that they said. Also, can you hurry this along? (laughs) Look, put it simply, the lighting argument was disturbingly compelling. The stripper costume that Mima wears right as she's being raped is looks identical to the looks very close to that of what she wore when she was de- uh, performing with Cham. That is done on purpose by Satoshi Kon to make some uh, sort of uh, similarities to show that the pop idol image is now dead, which is why in the following scene, she's then wearing black. And Satoshi Kon literally said that every fucking uh, frame in this film was done on purpose and he had final cut say on all of it. So there are no mistakes. And Therefore, that means that Tadokoro is probably also in on the fucking shenanigans. And yeah. Can we pass out now? I feel like passing out now, and we've not even, like, done the final page of our notes. So we've now got to fucking bullet train our way through this. All right. uh. Dude, I didn't even touch the whole fact that the the theme track seemed to indicate this as well. We don't have time! We don't have time for this, Vic! I've had enough! I want to leave! Tadakoro might be the person who actually stabbed the uh, stabbed uh, the photographer dude! Oh. oh, so when I say there's like hours and hours, and when Jay no, was saying there's this. hours and hours, we weren't joking. I want to go back to making fun of dumb anime. Alright. <laughs> We are both losing our minds slowly, which is very appropriate for the anime we're currently covering. So, final say on the climax of Perfect Blue. I love the chase scene, especially the scene where Rumi is sprinting after Mima, and in the mirror is her true self as she's struggling to sprint because she's more of a heavyset woman. The fact that the diegetic transitions come back especially when Mima is trying to resist her and the fact that she sort of squash and stretches back into her true form. The fact when she's hit by the truck, the fact that she thinks she's embracing spotlights is wonderful. And everything comes back, the score, 
plays the full version of the track we previously covered. Everything really lands in a terrific pose, all cylinders firing at maximum capacity. And then the ending song fucks the mood entirely because it's this weird sort of like happy poppy J song. Because of the whole, um, I'm the real Mima, but it's coming from Rumi's voice. Yes. It's supposed to be ambiguous. Yeah, I mean, that's where we can talk about the dub as well, yeah, actually, which, the dub screw up. It's, here's the thing, it's only really that fuck up that is a knock against it. It's a fine English translation. I think Bridget Hoffman as Mima and Wendy Lee as Rumi are the standout performances. Everyone else is fine. But yeah, it's because this was produced in the late 90s, they probably, because it's very difficult, because this film is dense. So obviously not everything is going to get translated or localized properly. The final scene that's supposed to be ambiguous where Mima looks towards her rearview mirror and says, I'm the real Mima. That was supposed to be in sort of like a mix between her voice and Rumi's, making it ambiguous of her mental state. But it's just Bridget Hoffman's voice in the dub. So it's kind of just a weird nothing scene. And that pretty much wraps up the Perfect Blue episode, because I'm ready to die. I I don't know what's... Now do you understand why I was having a bit of a breakdown? Well, I guess it's my turn to have a breakdown, because... Oh, boy. I wish Darren Aronofsky would come back and end my life now. <laughs> no, first you have to do the perfect ballet dance. Oh. Then, then he'll kill you. <laughs> oh... This has been the Rugamesh Podcast. Thank you very much for listening to the insane ramblings of two men going way too deep on a cartoon film about idols. Rate and review us on all your favorite podcasting apps. Thank you very much for suffering through this with me, Vikram. And remember, I love sushi, I love Japan, but I love you more for staying a fan. Good night, everyone. Bye! Too late to give you back My receipt is gone And I'm starting to look back at everything that's going wrong Know how I used to long To hold you in my hands Such a shame it took six weeks shipping directly from Japan not gonna lie, you were kawaii, but now your paint job's chipped away. Marielmo, my blues, my plastic wife. Your shining gloss once put my family in strife. For what I owe to you, I swear I could die. Body pillows I left hanging dry Oh darling, we're a mess Listening to Garuga Mesh <laughs>